I'm not going to preach today. I know that's a happy moment. <laughs> I'm going to read in keeping with the text. I'm going to read a eulogy. A eulogy is a fight for hope using words. So I want you to listen differently this morning. I want you to fight for hope by grabbing on to words today. God says, put on your funeral suit. Israel has died. Through the farmer poet Amos, whose name means burden bearer, God speaks to an ostentatious and affluent country in the ancient world who just happened to be God's people. God has made his case against Israel. Their worship is a show to soothe their personal religious hankerings. Their wealth has blinded them to their greed, which has blinded them to the poor among them. A neglect which God views not as just stingy, but unjust. In fact, this injustice God sees as violence on par with Israel's surrounding nations who have brutalized their neighbors. In other words, God's people have blood on their hands because the poor mean less to them than a pair of sandals. So in Amos 5, our text, God responds to his people's worship, wealth, and violence. He responds with a eulogy. See the irony here. Israel is a military power with secure borders and a bustling economy, yet God laments like they are already dead and gone. So listen, listen, as Barb reads the lyrics of God's funeral song for Israel. A reading from the book of Amos. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. 
With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the ones who tell the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We will follow the eulogy's chiastic structure chiastic after the Greek letter chi in the shape of an X, which means everything in this poem builds toward and flows from the middle. And in the middle, there's a hymn to Yahweh. There will be three steps towards the middle. Israel's death, God's call to life, and then the middle, the name and the power of Yahweh, who is at the center of life and death. So first, God mourns the death of Israel. The song begins and ends with God lamenting the pain of the death of Israel. Notice the name in verses 1 and 2. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. This is the first time in the Bible that God calls Israel virgin Israel. How deep is God's grief for Israel? As deep as when a father's virgin daughter dies. She was about to enter the most fulfilling time of her life as wife and mother. But the virgin dies, and any hope of a future is no more. Notice the scene in verse 3. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. The scene is a military disaster. In fact, the poem's meter shifts into what the scholars call a breve, which is a five-count rhythm, something like a military march. Israel's military units named by tens and hundreds and thousands, are marching to their deaths. 
90% of the army will be killed by the Assyrians. Notice the need. There's a shortage of mourners. In verses 16 and 17, there will be wailing in all the streets, cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Because the army has been decimated, the grief will reach most families, and to facilitate funerals, they will hire clergy. But because there is so much death, there are not enough mourners. So farmhands will be hired to wail, taken even from the vineyards, which were known as the happiest place on earth. All because, as God puts it, I will pass through your midst. God uses the exact words from the Exodus Passover, except that now God is not death passing over his people. He is death destroying his people. And thus will end the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. by the hand of the Assyrians. This is God singing a sad song. What does it mean that God is mourning Israel's death? It means death is not okay. If God is mourning, death is not okay. This is the way, not the way, this is not the way it's supposed to be. The song is taproot from Genesis 3 when our first parents and every person since decide that God is not good or good enough and we turned against God to take life into our own hands and in that moment, everything dies. Sin ruptures all of creation and every human heart. Sickness, selfishness, suffering, And every funeral service since describe an existence not here by original design. And God sings funeral songs every day, and it has been a long, long grief. Death is never okay. Look, look, Jesus is weeping at the grave of Lazarus. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus absorbs the sadness around him. He understands how death 
stalks us. He mourns the lack of faith on the part of those who had been with him, and he laments the hostility and hypocrisy of those in the crowd who are already plotting his death. Everything wrong with the world is on display in the Bethany Cemetery. Sickness, death, unbelief, and the garden has become a graveyard. And Amos, the burden bearer, says we are never more like God than when we are moved by the devastation of death. So when God sits down, sits you down and me down, when he says to us, sit down and let me teach you to pray, you know what he does? He hands us the Psalms. And he says, pray these. At least one a day. Pray these. And do you understand, Waterstone, that 70% of the Psalms are lament? Christians run toward the pain with liquid prayer. People in this world need you to pray the Psalms for them. When we hear about 12 million, 12 million Syrian refugees being forced from their homes, arguably the greatest people movement caused by disaster in the history of the world. When we, it's happening now. When we hear of these most tragic events of our time, Will we remember that history belongs to the intercessors? Hear this, Waterstone. Hear this. Blessed are those who mourn. God has a heavy heart because of the devastation of sin and death. And sin among his own people. So what does he do? What does he do? Well, three times the Lord says to Israel, three times, seek God and live. Seek me and live. Seek good. Run from evil. And then God waits 50 years for them to come back. God sings this song, Amos tells us, two years before the earthquake, which archaeologists tell us was in 765 B.C., and then Assyria doesn't smash Israel until 722 B.C. Fifty years, God implores his people to turn, turn, turn from being self-serving to God-serving. Christians use a word here that will not be retired. Do you know what the word is? It's repent. Repent. In Mark's gospel, repent is the first verb from Jesus' mouth. 
in Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, which, by the way, he nailed to the Wittenberg door on October 31st, 1517, which is the real reason we should celebrate Halloween. And you would do me a great honor if you took your kids and grandkids and dressed them up like Martin Luther, complete with shaving a bald spot in the middle of their head. You would honor me greatly, please. That's what October 31st is about. And if it didn't happen, you would not be here. Please, Martin Luther. You think I'm kidding. The first of the 95 theses that Luther nailed to the door reads, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent. He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. What does it mean to repent? To repent means to make continual adjustments in your life moved by a growing appraisal of God's worth. So what does it look like? There are two parts to repentance. The first part is to actually delight in God's worth. Can I ask you a question? Are you continually impressed with God? Recently, I heard a sermon by Eric Knox, who's a pastor up in Portland and a hip-hop artist. He's a good preacher. In fact, I, no, never mind. My grandmother, he says, my grandmother was an artist in Mexico City in the 1930s, and one of her best friends was a guy named Diego Rivera. When grandmother died, Diego Rivera attended her funeral and gave three paintings to her daughter, Eric's mom. Her, her name was Claudia. Claudia was 12 at the time. Years later, our family moved to Inglewood, California, where we grew up with those Diego Rivera paintings on the walls. None of us knew the significance of who Diego Rivera was. One time, a new guy moved onto our street, and we had him over for dinner. He happened to be a jeweler and an art appraiser. He sees the paintings and says, Claudia, come here. Is that Diego Rivera? That's not Diego Rivera. She says, yeah, that's Diego Rivera. He used to be friends with my mom back in Mexico City. He says, do you know how much these paintings are worth? She had no idea. He says, can I take one and get it appraised for you? That one painting was worth $75,000. My mom lost her mind in a good way. And by the way, do you know that the Greek word for repentance is metanoia? Above your mind. Lost your mind! In a good way. Years later, I asked her, Mom, what did you do from the Monday to the Tuesday before you sold the first painting? And she said, I locked it in my closet, I got me a gun, and nobody was going to touch Diego Rivera. (laughs) This is repentance. Growing up, They were just paintings on a wall. 
all of a sudden, someone sees their worth and everything changes. When we have a right appraisal of who God is, everything is transformed. I love the way Simone Weil puts it. If there is a God, it is not an insignificant fact, but something that requires radical rethinking of every little thing. Your knowledge of God can't be considered as one fact among many. You have to bring all the other facts into line with the fact of God. To get practical for a moment, how do we grow our appraisal of God? I'd like to give you two concrete suggestions. The first As we'll see in just a few moments, at the very center of this eulogy is the hymn about Yahweh in verses 8 and 9. We'll get there in a moment. But two things stand out about that hymn. First, God is very concerned that we know how big and strong he is. So he talks about the Pleiades in the Orion. He talks about consolations. He talks about weather patterns. He talks about how he has control of nations. I mean of uh, nature, nature. Do I even need to say this in Colorado? I don't know. You tell me. One of the great ways we can grow our appraisal of how powerful God is is simply in this state to walk outside. Right? Do I need to tell you to get outside and talk to God? And in talking to God outside, your appraisal of him will grow. A second way, besides telling you to, don't skip church though, okay? Do not skip church. A second way to get into the theater of appraising God is to notice when we get there in verses 8 and 9 that God is very much about us knowing his name. The name of God. As we sang earlier, to speak his name is to praise him. God reveals his character and his heart through his names. And in the Hebrew culture, your name defined you. And if you speak someone's name, you speak their worth and their value. So I have an idea for you. In the the hymn of Yahweh, which we'll get to in a moment, God says, every day I'm marking your life. There's day and there's night. There's day and there's night. There's day and there's night. And he's marking your life. What if you began to mark those times that God's marking your life by speaking his name to him. You can Google the names of God. I did it last night and come up with easy 100 names from the Bible. There's 25 names of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Google the names of God. And what if every morning you start doing this? Good morning, Prince of Peace. And what if at night, before you... Your head hits the pillow. Good night, Prince of Peace. And what if the next morning you hit the next name? Good, good morning, healer. Good night, healer. What you're doing is just creating there a window through which to see God and really through which to let him in. And your appraisal of him will grow.
the names of God. Speak them. Speak them to him. The other part of repentance, in addition to delighting in God's worth and growing appraisal, is demonstrating God's heart. And this is why Amos says in verses 4 through 6, do, do, do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. You see, what Israel was trying to do was to get to heaven on their good behavior. And they'd set up worship and they were doing it their way. They were not doing it in truth or love. They were just doing it to manipulate God to their ends. God is not interested in our definitions of religion to gain his favor. Nor is he interested in our definition of what good works are to demand his approval. We turn to God to receive the life that Jesus lived and be declared righteous, the lens through which God views us, and we turn to God to be given the death that Jesus died, to be forgiven. You see, it does not depend on what we do. It depends on what Jesus has done. And so we come, we come as Martin Luther's last known writing on a scrap piece of paper 30 years after Wittenberg was. His last words, we are beggars. It is true. Beggars. We come to God by grace, through faith in Christ. And understanding what he's given us alters us to the core. And love starts to come out. His love. Such that we have to serve others. Have to. When the scribes ask Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He says, love the Lord your God. You know it. With all your heart with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Do we see the reason why God is so distraught with Israel? He says it in verse 7, because through their own self-seeking ways, they turned justice into wormwood, and they cast righteousness aside, which means this, Waterstone. On Sunday... Israel said they love God, but on Monday, they dwelt in their stone mansions with not a thought for the poor. They do not demonstrate God's heart because they do not know him. Look, look again. There's Jesus. There's Jesus among us. He's hanging out with sinners. The fact that Jesus spoke to women and children, an indignity for a man of his day, speaks to God minding the gap of social and economic separations. And so he comes, he steps foot on his planet with one thing in mind, to save us and reorder power. <laughs> Do you think it was a coincidence that Jesus called both Matthew, a tax collector beholden to the Roman government, and Simon the Zealot, who was a libertarian? God is reordering power here. He steps foot onto his planet to show us what to do. Reorder power 
in service of others. God evaluates a community not by their beauty, not by their wealth, not by their success, but by the way it treats the poor and reorders power. Let justice roll down. Hear this, Waterstone. Hear this. We have participated in a society that has disordered power. Rich and poor are disconnected even in the church. The rich hang out with the rich. The poor hang out with the poor. The blacks hang out with the blacks. The whites hang out with the whites. The middle class hangs out with the middle class. And few there are who are willing to be cross-cultural missionaries for a God who longs to rightly order power in his house. Are you, are you willing to get people around you who contradict you? How else will you grow? Will you order power in your life in a way that demonstrates the heart of God? God has a heavy heart because of Israel's death, which he laments 50 years before it happens. Why? So that a remnant could repent could delight in God and could demonstrate his good heart to the nations. Now, finally, we come to the center. The Lord is his name. Uh, look at verses 8 and 9. He, made, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn, who darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. And with a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold. And brings the fortified city to ruin. God actually uses an old hymn that they sang in the temple and in the synagogues. He uses an old hymn with seven verbs. Seven, the perfect number. Seven verbs that describe the power and majesty of God. How much power does God have? Well... He stuck the Pleiades and the Orion on the ceiling for your viewing pleasure. The ancients associated stars with the new year and the change of seasons. What the hymn's about is how God regulates time, not only annuals, but also day and night. Day and night. And then God summons the waters of the sea to pour them out over the earth. Some think it's an allusion to the great flood. Other thinks it's God's everyday sending of weather patterns. It's probably both. He makes the weather. And he also makes nations rise and fall. And listen, listen. God is singing, I am, I am central to your future because I have power over life and death. Waterstone Community Church, hear this word. It's right from the hymn. You, you are history. Your days are measured day and night, 
day and night, day and night, and then you're done. Prepare to meet your God. The most verifiable truth that I can tell you this morning is that in 50 years, you'll be gone. Most of you. The statistics on death seek God and live. No matter what you believe about ultimate reality and life after death, you believe it by faith. You, right now, are trusting your life and your death to a story. You've never lived a moment of your life without faith in a story. So the question is, is it true? And where do you get your information? Faith is always a leap, but the ground you stand on should be solid. I'm asking, how solid? Look, there he is again. He's the, look at Jesus. He's standing at Lazarus' funeral, and he preaches, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus asked, you and me, do you believe this? Jesus, he always interrupted funerals. Why? Because he wanted to make this offer to you. Come to me, and I will give you life. I have power over death. I walked out of my grave. Follow me, and you'll have life, genuine life, forgiven by God, and breathing eternity here and now. And Waterstone, I'm submitting that that is, deep down, our deepest longing, eternal life. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and I say this to end every funeral and yours. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Jesus right now says, you're all building your life on a story. Is it solid? You build your life on my story. I walked out of my grave. Follow me. And then not even death will destroy you. If you haven't done so yet, as we sing this song, it's your opportunity to proclaim your faith in Jesus Christ and follow him. And for everyone else, 
it's your opportunity to sing it so hard you're going to gag. I don't know. Sing. Sing. Christ is risen. Oh, that was weak. Christ is risen. Follow him.